This is episode 007 with myself, Dan Keeley. This is the Are We OK UK podcast, the podcast on a mission to empower the UK to speak up when we're suffering so that together we can show future generations how it's done. Thanks for spending some time with me today. Now let the show begin. What's up, Dream Team? How are we doing? Happy December. We've got a lot to pack in between now and the end of the year, so I'm just going to dive straight into this one. This is the full live recording from the 2018 Healthcare Support Workers Conference at the Royal Derby and Burton Teaching Hospitals NHS Foundation Trust. Boom. Nailed it. <laughs> uh, it was an awesome opportunity to head back up there. It's actually the second time that we've spoken up in Derby now, and it was an amazing opportunity to update everybody on what we're up to with Are We OK UK and to really get across that message that we're stronger together in our teams if we do learn to speak up to the people to the left and right of us in the workplace when we're struggling and that can only filter down to those we're trying to serve particularly so if you're an absolute rock star working in the NHS let's just jump straight in guys I hope you enjoy it let's do it Hi everybody, how are we feeling? Good, excellent, good, good, good. Well, thanks so much for welcoming back to, uh, to Derby Faye. It's not just the Derby NHS Trust anymore, is it? Uh, we've expanded. Amazing, amazing. So yeah, I think we're back here in April, so um, it's awesome to see uh, 200 uh, new friendly faces. And um, yeah, it's just a real privilege to, to be back up here. But before we dive in, I just want to um, acknowledge every single one of you uh, in this room. Uh, to me, you're absolute rock stars. My wife, Georgie, is an ITU nurse. Um, so I think, uh, along with Caroline, I think you should all applaud the person to the left and right of you. So uh, it is absolutely awesome to, to be here. Um, I absolutely love this stuff. There's nowhere else in the world I'd rather be than in this room with you guys. I absolutely mean that. Um, you know, I'm super passionate about this face-to-face interaction with all of you guys. Um, I think it works well with uh, Caroline's uh, empathy training as well. And uh, you know, I'm just super passionate about collaborating with um, yeah, passionate organisations who really care about uh, their staff team around them, uh, your career development, um, and and ultimately like you know creating an environment and a culture here which is a life enhancing experience for you guys to come to work every day and we know the pressures what the the nhs are under and we get it but you know these guys are absolutely ahead of the curve and they're really investing in in all of you um and and, and you know trying to make this experience of coming to work every day uh, a life enhancing uh, experience that's a real privilege and, a, and an honor uh, to be back up here um, so I always uh, start my talks with a, a bit of a, a bold statement, and that is that, uh, bear with me, I love every single one of you in this room, I really do. And the, the reason I say that is because um, it's my heartfelt belief that every single one of us is suffering or, or struggling with something at any given moment. And it doesn't matter whether you're Theresa May, Beyonce, Captain Poldark, it doesn't matter who you are, I think we've all got something going on at any given moment. I really do believe that. And the reason I say that is because of um, this journey that my mind has taken me on over the past six years, what I like to call this mental adventure. It's a mental adventure for good reason. 
And uh, the adventure really starts in January 2012. I'm going to try and do a bit of a timeline thing. Got a clicker, excellent. So the adventure really starts in uh, January 2012. So up until that point, uh, I'd always been a pretty passionate, enthusiastic, positive, creative, sporty person. Uh, you know, first one to sports training, last one to leave. Uh, president of different sports societies, or um, yeah, just all sorts of uh, sort of creative, sporty endeavours over the year. I uh, uh, put myself in debt to go and be a skiing instructor out in Val d'Isère, uh, out in the French Alps. I went off to do um, uh, an architecture degree, uh, degree just because I could draw a pretty good stadium. I dropped out of that after six weeks. It wasn't the right, it wasn't the right path for me. Uh, so anyway, a whole whole number of different things, which is generally creative or, or, or sporty. Um, but the adventure really starts, as I say, in January 2012, when after many years of searching for a vocation where I could apply my sort of natural energy and enthusiasm and passion for sport and social impact, um, I was really searching for that occupation that I could, you know, genuinely help society, just like every one of you in this room. And at that time, uh, I came across these two words together, a snow sports charity, a snow sports charity. I couldn't believe it. There's a snow sports charity. I didn't even know that existed. And so there's this charity that exists um, that is, uh, it's been set up now for 15 years and uh, the charity is there to change the lives of underprivileged inner city young people with skiing and snowboarding. And I couldn't believe that this charity exists. So I got in touch, I applied and got offered the position of uh, the community and partnerships manager. And I remember how I felt on day one with this job. And if you think this is sort of energy and enthusiasm now, you should have seen how I was on day one back in uh, January, January 2012. So I started at the charity and through January, February, March, April, May, I was just absolutely giving it everything I had. So I stopped looking after myself. You know, I was so excited about this new vocation and I was so passionate about giving every ounce of my energy I could to changing the lives of these inner city young people, to get them out of the inner city estates, to get them involved in a positive activity and eventually out to the mountains, which is absolutely life-changing. And I was, I was obsessed, I was absolutely obsessed with trying to do what I could to help the lives of these inner city young people. And my energy just started to dial up and up, up and up. And I really stopped looking after myself. So the thought of, you know, spending two hours in a kitchen to cook a nutritious meal just seemed like a complete waste of time where I could just shove something in the microwave and crack on with coming up with these new ideas or events or partnerships to, to raise money and change the lives of these young people. And I stopped looking after myself in terms of my sleep. You know, during that period, there were three weeks straight where um, I just had two hours sleep a night which is awful, it's, it's just awful. And uh, Georgie would wake up in the morning and you know, there'd be streams of uh, paper all over the lounge with all these like, creative ideas and how I was gonna get the stuff out of my system. And you know, I'm sure some of you have seen Homeland where Carrie is just on that high where she's just like pumping out all these ideas and you have to get the stuff out of your system. So you know, I was just speeding up, I was just speeding up. And everybody around me, you know, they still thought it was me. You know, it's still Dan, but just a slightly heightened version. With Dan, you know, he's just absolutely giving it everything with his job. That's all. That's all it seemed like. Um, but of course, it was going to be much more than that. So we booked this uh, two-week holiday out to Italy in June uh, 2012. And this is me and Georgie. We booked this two-week holiday out to Italy, and everybody was saying, "Dan, just please switch off. You know, please just go out there and just turn off your phone and relax." But I couldn't. I couldn't. So we're now in June 2012, and at this point, after really believing I was going to have the, this huge impact on the lives of these young people, 
I started thinking, why stop there? Why wouldn't I try and help society with all these ideas? And if I was going to stop there, why wouldn't I try and change the world? And so I was just absolutely giving it everything. I was absolutely giving it everything. Everybody's telling me to slow down and switch off, but I couldn't. I couldn't. And using the analogy of a Formula One car, my foot was firmly planted on the accelerator, and I just stopped listening to the people around me, and I was just going at 200 miles an hour, and things were going to get pretty catastrophic, as you can imagine. So we're flying out to Italy, and I can remember even on the plane, you know, like there was these, uh, a tech-savvy couple sitting next to me, and so when we got to the airport and people are picking up their bags, and Georgie goes up to the loo, I'm going up to them, I don't know these people, going up to them, it's like, I'm going to need you guys on my team, you know, I'm, I'm the next Steve Jobs, I'm going to need you guys on my team, and I'm going up to people, random people in airports, saying, you look pretty savvy, I'm going to need you on my team, just keep an eye out for me, and they're like, how do we keep in touch? And I was like, don't, don't worry, you'll, you'll, you'll see. And it was, it, was, it was crazy. It was crazy. I was starting to lose my sanity. So we're out of this hotel, this uh, rustic, half-developed hotel. And my mood and these beliefs were dialing up and up to another level. And I started believing with every atom of my being that I was the chosen one. I believed I was the chosen one. So I went from Steve Jobs, Mark Zuckerberg, the chosen one. I genuinely believed it. I believed I was this messenger that was put on the planet to ease as much of the world's suffering as I possibly could. And um, I remember, you know, one night, I just, you know, the first couple of nights we were there, I, I just didn't sleep. You know, I was, uh, I, I believed I'd written a New Age Bible fit for 2012 at the time by stripping down this book about Apple success. It's like, why can't this be applied to society? So I believed I'd written a New, a new Age Bible. Um, again, when Georgie was down by the pool, I was going up to uh, up to the hotel family and saying, you know, I, I want to invest in your hotel, I want to develop this hotel. And at one point, I got my credit card out with money I didn't have to buy a bottle of wine for every single room in the hotel with money I didn't have. And I just wanted to give it all away. You can imagine some of the smiles down at breakfast the next day. Saying, you know, that was, that was yeah, small version. Um, it was, it was, it was obviously. Um, pretty alarming for, for Georgie at the time. And so she calls her mother and my mother to fly out to be with us because it was evident that, you know, something is really severely wrong here. And uh, yeah, no, it does get a bit emotional. Um, something's severely wrong. So my mum's in Portugal at the time. So Georgie, uh, you know, liaises with my mum and she makes arrangements to fly up from Portugal to come and be with us in Northern Italy. Georgie's mum, Nikki, makes arrangements to fly up from the UK to join us in Southern Italy. And the family at the hotel were just absolutely amazing they were just um amazing and um they you know they, they just mentioned to georgie that there was a uh, a psychiatric ward um, about an hour's drive away and um you know it was obviously the safest place to get me to at that time so we pack up the fiat 500 that we had um on high obviously it's obviously going to be a fiat 500 isn't it and um, so we pack up the car we um and i was the only one insured on the car but we, we still deemed it safe enough so i was prepared at this point to go along with anything as long as it didn't get in my way of trying to change the world i was happy to go along with anything as long as it didn't get in my way of trying to ease as much of the world's suffering as i possibly could in the most impactful way possible that i could think of in these moments so we're driving over to um, this psychiatric hospital. Like I said, it's about an hour away. Hour, hour away. And um, you know, it's sort of three, four o'clock in the afternoon, and we're driving over there. And at this point, it was evident that this was just getting too dangerous. So yeah, we, we, uh, yeah, we pull over on the hard shoulder. And um, I stripped down to my khaki shorts. I like, scrambled out the car and you know, stripped down to just my khaki shorts. And you know, at this point, um, 
you know, I was searching for this like point of singularity, this answer that was going to ease all the world's suffering. And at that point, it was this core belief that if we all learn to slow down and follow our hearts, that is a fast track ticket to ease so much of the world's suffering. So we're 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 on the hard shoulder. I'm stripped down to my khaki shorts. I start walking down the hard shoulder of this motorway in Italy, and then I start running down the hard shoulder of this motorway in Italy. And I start putting my hands up to stop the traffic. And so I stepped into the middle lane, uh, the, the, the slow lane of the motorway, and started putting my hands up to back up the traffic, and then the middle lane, and then the fast lane. So there I was, stood in the middle of this major motorway in northern Italy, pretty much at rush hour, stood in the middle of this motorway with my arms outstretched, and I was like, we've done it. We've done it. This is the reset button. This is the start of easing all of the world's suffering and changing the tide. And I can still picture the face, you know, of, the, of, one, of this first car. If you lined up 2,000 cars in a car park, I can still pick out the face with this guy at the front and this little red Fiat Panda looking at me. He's like, what the hell are you doing? What are you doing? Who is this guy sitting on this motorway? And of course, I lost my sanity. And I was like, slow down, one at a time. Why don't you go, slow down, follow your heart, one at a time. Um, and... You know, it was almost like Red Bull was pumping through my body, and I would not evangelize any of this or anybody's trying to strive to get to this point because obviously it was going to be catastrophic, it is not sustainable. And what was to come was to, uh, yeah, it just wasn't going to end well. So, the, the best visual representation I could show you guys to demonstrate what it felt like in that moment and how devastating things were about to become, I couldn't think of a better way to show you how far over the line my mental health was and what happens when we stop listening to the people around us. talks and it still chokes me up every time I look at it. Um, so so obviously this was never going to end well and my version of hitting the barriers was shortly after where um, the ambulance seemed to turn up and the police officers and I, I wasn't arrested but um, in fact it was the opposite of being arrested. I was trying to convince them that they were going to be my head of security <laughs> and my chief medical officers and we were going to set up our headquarters at the Coliseum. Um, but yeah, they very quickly got the picture. So we're strapped down in the back of an ambulance, we're fast trapped to the hospital, I get locked in a room and strapped down to a bed and they just start pumping me full of drugs. They absolutely just start pumping me, pumping me full of drugs just to make me slow down and eat and sleep and slow down and eat and sleep and slow down and eat and sleep. And it was just a really confusing 
couple of weeks out there. There's two and a half weeks, and I was waking up, and I'd be starving hungry, and the first thing I'd be angry if I wasn't eating, so I'd wake up after 14, 15 hours of sleep, wake up, be starving hungry, whopping down with food, and then I was getting a bit agitated, because I was like, you know, why are we here? Why, why aren't we at the Coliseum? And oh, why is Georgie's mum here? And, you know, I just couldn't, I couldn't join the dots. And my, it was almost like my chassis was completely broken. My gearbox was broken, my mind was broken, and I, it was just a com completely confusing two and a half weeks. It was just this weird space I was in, you know, being in any psychiatric ward is not a nice place to be, especially when you, you know, 75% of the people out there only spoke Italian as well. It was a really confusing time, but obviously I was so fortunate to have Georgie and yeah, my family with me. Um, so we're out there, and then after, obviously they're trying to get me back to the UK as, as uh, quickly as possible. And uh, two nurses from the British Embassy, they fly out to escort me home. Um, I actually got drugged up a bit in first class, but I didn't know anything about it. Um, so uh, we get flying back to the UK, and uh, we land at Gatwick Airport, and we get fast track to uh, the Maudsley Psychiatric Ward in South London, which is actually one of the UK's most prominent um, NHS uh, psychiatric hospitals in the UK. Um, you know, this isn't London, and um, it's not a nice place to be. It was grimy, it was confusing, it was dark, um, and, you know, I'd say out of the sort of 25 staff that were looking after me, I'd say only five of them really had that empathy, you know, and they didn't treat me like a number, and they really looked after me. And actually, there's one guy called Dale. Yeah, I haven't really mentioned him in any talks recently, but he was just like a big brother. You know, he just recognised that I needed to run, I needed to get some energy out of my system. So, you know, so he'd try and make sure that the gym was empty for me to just to run laps uh, in the gym and that kind of thing. And, uh, yeah, you know, um, I was really lucky to have him in there as well. So, so I'm in the Maudsley, I'm in there for another two and a half weeks, and of course I'm going to get the diagnosis of bipolar disorder. Uh, so after pretty much six weeks of being in, in the psychiatric wards, I get discharged, uh, so we're now in uh, July um, 2012, and without oversimplifying it, the back end of 2012 was was a really dark chapter. You know, I, I went from having 100% conviction in my ideas and my energy and how we we're going to change the world to having zero conviction in any word that was leaving my lips or any thought that I had. I couldn't trust my thinking, and I just I just lost I just lost everything. Um, you know, I didn't have a purpose. I, I felt like the biggest burden on uh, everybody around me. And, and uh, you know, I just, uh, it, was, it was just embarrassing. It was a really embarrassing six months. And, um, you know, I completely disconnected. I was bed bound, uh, you know, trying to walk two meters just to brush my teeth every day was the toughest thing. You know, I couldn't, I couldn't do it most days. I had to get my toothbrush board to be in bed. And, uh, it was really tough. It was really, really tough. And uh, there was this turning point. So, you know, after six months of pretty much being bed bound, being debilitated, and getting pretty close to, to ending you guys as well, but we, you know, we don't, you, you get the picture. It was, it was a really dark time. We don't really need to talk about that. You know, but after uh, getting immediate uh, talking therapy, because I was critical, you know, I had talking therapy straight away, and we were trying different medication that would work for me, which actually took three years in the long run to get right. So it was a really confusing, you know, six months again. It wasn't easy. But we get to December 2012, and I had this turning moment. So, uh, you know, Georgie says, Dan, look, if you can just go up to Sainsbury's, it's 10 minutes away. You know, just pick up some milk and some cereal. I'll be so proud of you. So I did. So snooze, 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 3 p.m., 4 p.m. 
I was like, okay, okay, I can do this. So I've got dressed, I hadn't really been out in public. So I walk up to Sainsbury's 10 minutes away, I pick up the milk, that's fine. I turn into aisle 14 and I froze. And just, I was just looking down this, uh, this tunnel of colour and decisions. You know, it was, it was a tunnel of decisions I had to make and I couldn't, I couldn't make a simple choice between pram flakes and cornflakes, which is all we've ever had. <laughs> because I was so fearful of making the wrong decision. Like a brown flakes or cornflakes. I was so fearful of spending two pounds in the wrong way. It was awful, I was completely broken. And, you know, I was just crying internally in that supermarket and I thought, you know, I've, I've got to do something. I can't, this, this just can't continue. So, you know, picked up, the, picked up the items. I left the supermarket, there's a 10 minute walk home. And in those 10 minutes, I made a conscious choice to make a decision, to strip everything back, to put myself first, and start again and so that is what i did so i started this really cathartic cleansing process where i just stripped it all back i just stripped it all back and completely started again and i gave myself permission to put myself first to do what i needed to do to get back to a point where i was doing just okay i was doing just okay and that is where i wanted to get to you know for my nieces my nephews my family i just wanted to get to okay and then we'll go from there as a team afterwards and i just started decluttering you know so i started decluttering all my sort of physical possessions that weren't either adding value or were aesthetic you know so everything that was left in our in our little apartment was um either beautiful or useful you know so everything was really intentional about what i had in the space around me so i created a much quieter space to recover in um, I started taking it down to a really low level, you know, I decluttered all the apps on my phone, every email in my inbox that I didn't know who it's from and unsubscribing to things. Um, relationships actually that weren't really, you know, sort of serving at least my mental health at the time, responsibilities that I couldn't commit to, all that stuff. So I just started this amazing cathartic cleansing process and then I discovered a lifestyle choice which is what this is, which is minimalism. So effectively it's just really... Um, yeah, it's a, it's a continual process of ridding yourself of life's excess so you can focus on what matters most, which uh, for most minimalists who would agree, it's your health, your passions, your growth, uh, being in service to other people, and there was one more, sorry, your health, your relationships, your passions, your growth, and being in service to other people. But number one, your health, your mental health, because if you haven't got that, you can't do all the rest of the stuff. And, you know, I just, um, it was just really working for me. So. You know, now through, um, we're now in 2013, so 2013, 14, 15, you know, I've, I've always been expressive anyway, so, you know, whenever I saw any of my friends and family, there was no reason for me to hide anything, you know, I was just very happy to talk about my experiences, you know, and just normalise it. And I just started speaking openly, and just other people were finding value in the message, you know, so whether it was at a barbecue or a dinner, um, you know, people saying, you know, you need to come and share this stuff. And I was more than happy to because of the tears and the hugs and everything else afterwards every time I did. So, you know, I just started speaking on different platforms and festivals and events. And, you know, I was just really, really fortunate to get a number of people that, you know, really valued or supported me to get this message out there. And so I think the thing that, you know, effectively that's, that's why I'm here on this stage now is that that started that journey of just speaking openly about my experiences and, um, and and three three amazing things started to happen like every time I shared my story um, I felt lighter every time I shared my story I felt lighter and it is happening right now talking these words to you guys 
The second thing is that I started building an even greater support network around me, you know, of what I call my dream team. And so I've got so many people who will have my back, you know, if they think I'm going too fast again or even going the other way. You know, it happens every time. And the third thing, which is even more amazing, is that nine times out of ten, a number of people to the audiences are speaking to, and I'm hoping this is going to be the case over lunch, is other people share their experiences with me. Nine times out of ten. I share my story, I feel lighter, build an even greater support network around me, and other people started opening up to me. And I was like, this is incredible, and I need to do something with this. So I couldn't think of a better way after this, you know, three, four, five year journey of recovery, I couldn't think of a better way now to, to take my message to a bigger level uh, and a larger scale. So I knew I had to create a really big project to, to share my story and ultimately empower more people to speak up when they're suffering. So I just started asking myself, what if? Uh, and I was just like, what if um, I was to take on a big running adventure? And what if I was to incorporate Italy somehow? And I got to the point where I was like, what if I was to return to Italy, but this time run solo from the Colosseum in Rome all the way back to the London Eye, but this time I was going to use it as a huge platform to share my story, celebrate the journey that we've been on together over the course of five years as a huge platform to share my story. So I'm now speaking to you exactly one year on from having completed this 1,250-mile, 65-day running adventure from Rome to home. Oh, thank you. So I've got uh, a couple of videos to play you guys, and they, guys, we're gonna... they do need to come with a bit of a, a free warning. Um, so uh, the second video is the one we all want to see, which is the five-minute highlight reel. Um, it's on YouTube. You can watch all the daily highlights. So I've got the five-minute highlight reel to play after this video, um, but I just want to brace you guys for this first one. Um, Carolyn, Carolyn's looking at me because she's seen it before. It's pretty raw, it's pretty emotional, and the reason I feel it's really important to play this first video is because you saw how Edson Senna was driving when he was over the limit. This was me over the limit. So after starting the adventure on the 25th of August, those first two weeks were incredible. You know, the whole adventure was coming to life with more colour and magic and bliss than I ever, ever could have dreamed of. You know, the generosity of people, uh, you know, I was just feeling stronger every day. You know, I'd really done my homework. The kit was really working for me. It was stunning. It was stunning. So every day, you know, I feel, I'm feeling stronger and stronger and stronger. And it got to day 16 and I woke up, you know, I was posting these daily videos and I woke up on day 16 and I had five separate messages from five different people saying, Dan, I'm really worried about you. Your video last night just didn't make any sense. You were talking way too fast. The edit was really fast. You know, we just couldn't make any sense of the video you shared last night. We think you're hyper hypermanic. So this isn't full-scale mania, but if, you know, if you think of me having seven gears, this was me in sixth gear, and I was right on the edge. I was right on the edge. And this first video just really captures what it was like to be in a hypermanic episode. Um, so just brace yourself. It's pretty emotional. Look out for the guy with the umbrella at the end. It makes me laugh every time. And then we'll go straight into the, uh, the highlight reel with Rain to Home. Enjoy.
So guys, at this point in the talk, we play two videos back to back. The first is when I wake up on day 16 of my running adventure in a hypermanic state. So as you heard, I had amazing people around me to, to remind me that I was in a, a slightly hypermanic state, that my mood was definitely elevated and we had to manage that and bring it back down. And the second talk is the five minute highlight reel, which ends with uh, yeah, a pretty cool tune at the end. So let's just dive back in. forget I've got a second half of my talk to give every time I watch that video. <laughs> um, so there you saw guys, so yeah, 1,250 miles, 65 days, and uh, as you can tell it was pretty, pretty life-changing and pretty life-affirming given where I was five years prior. And there, there are a few highlights um, that weren't included in the video, which I do have to mention. So, um, you know, standing at the Colosseum, the Colosseum with uh, 10 minutes to go before starting, um, you know, I had this golden sunrise with, you know, the, the sun just beaming through the arches of the Colosseum and warming up the right side of my face. And then the countdown, 10 seconds to go, five seconds to go, one last kiss, here we go, on our way. And then uh, um, I was loosely following this religious pilgrimage path. So I was staying in all these different convents and all these different places. So when I got to Siena, um, after I think it was like 10 days or something, um, uh, you, you always make a donation to stay in these places. But on the, on the way out, this, this chief nun grabbed my arm and like, just slipped me 20 euros. She kind of refunded me towards the success of uh, the adventure. And then uh, two nights later, um, I arrived in a town and, uh, and uh, the, um, my guidebook lied to me. There wasn't any accommodation anymore. And I was prepared to spend you know, 40, 50 quid to stay in the place. And so I was like, do you know what? It's a dry night. It's fine. Uh, let, let's, let's just see what we can find. I had a small bivy bag with me. So I head torch on, continue up the path, saw these stables down the end of a lane. I Oh, yeah, it looks perfect. So I went down there, head torch off, look around, really great night's sleep, lying on this on this hay. And woke up the next morning, I thought I'd get up at five, get going, you know, not to disturb anybody. And I saw this tractor coming down towards me. And I swear I saw a shotgun in the back of his trailer. I can't be sure. But he starts walking towards me with his arms out. I'm like, no, that's no, fine, it's fine. I've got my translated text out to explain what I was doing. And then he paid me 30, 30 euros uh, towards the adventure. So I saved 50 euros. I got paid 30. So that was, that was awesome. Um, uh, uh, getting to the Alps, you know, I love the mountains. So two, day, two and a half days up, two and a half days down. That was amazing. Downloading the Queen playlist at exactly the same day when my friends reminded me that Freddie Mercury spent a lot of his life in Montreux on Lake Geneva. So I had 28 miles to have sunset with Freddie Mercury, the life, Lives of a Life statue in Montreux. Uh, yeah, climbing out of Switzerland. France was just a bit of a blur until uh, we got near Paris. So I just clocked over a thousand miles, recorded this Forrest Gump video. Again, it's all on YouTube. And uh, I had the shout out from my brother. So my brother is a Red Arrows pilot. So he's Red, Red 2 at the time. And so I get this video message and wake up uh, having just clocked over a thousand miles, I had this video message from Rev One and all the team saying, uh, we've just finished our tour in the Middle East, we're in southern Germany, we want to give uh, Red Two's little brother a bit of a nod, 
Well done, Dan. We'll see you when you get back in the UK. So I messaged my brother. I said, you're in southern Italy having a day's rest before flying back to the UK. I'm near Paris. You must be flying over me somewhere. And he's like, bro, if you can get two miles of where you are now, the 226 on the button, and just look up, we'll see what we can do. And I was expecting one little flash of white smoke. I had nine streams of white smoke above me. And you could have written it. I had my own freaking flyover. <laughs> Who gets that? Unless you're the queen. Um, you just couldn't have written it. You couldn't have written it. And it wouldn't have worked on any other day. It was unbelievable. And then uh, got to the channel. My sister got up at 2.30 in the morning to, uh, to cross the channel to, to, to wait for me at, um, at Dieppe to go back over the channel. Like, bless her. It was awesome. And then um, the five days leading up to the London Eye, I called it the home leg. And it was amazing. And then you saw, you saw the, uh, the welcome at the London Eye. And it was just, it was just this uh, celebration, you know, of the journey that we've been on together. That's why I always say we. It was a collective effort. And I couldn't have done it without all those people um, in that photo. Oh, gosh. <laughs> Got the rest of my talk to give, haven't I? Um, yeah, so, oh, so I finished the adventure a year ago. On the 28th of October last year, I finished the adventure pretty much a year ago, uh, as we are now. And, uh, you know, my beliefs and my motivation has gone up to a whole other level. But don't worry, my energy is in check. And, you know, I just... Again, I've just been completely reaffirmed over the past um, over the past twelve months, just how much I believe that everybody is struggling, uh, but also just the scale of the issue. And you know, it's absolutely vast. And you know, there are just so many people still across our society, me included, this year that are just suffering in silence. And it's not it's not easy, is it? Speaking up about the stuff that's going on inside, it's not easy. And you know, I've got to I've got to mention the stat, but you know, in twenty seventeen. There were 5,821 people that took their life last year, registered. So 5,281 people are no longer with us, um, having taken their lives in, in 2017. So uh, on average, you know, every two hours, somebody won't be here anymore tonight. 12, ma- 12 men who woke up this morning won't be with us uh, this evening. And, you know, for me, I've really been paying attention uh, over the past six years as uh, what I think, at least, uh, this boils down to. And I think it comes down to three core things. And that is that, for those of us that struggle, um, right now, me included, probably some of you guys in this room, the 66.6 million people across the UK, 66.6 or 6.6? It's one of those two. I think it's 6.6. I think it's 6.6. I'll have to share that one. Um, but, you know, again, I think everybody out there is struggling with something. And I think it boils down to three, th- three key things, which is either they didn't have the courage to speak up when they're suffering, which is the hardest thing, the support around them, or the safe space to do so. So it's the courage, the support, and the safe space to speak up when we're suffering. And the amazing thing is, is that there's been a huge... Uh, you know, national response. You know, on a national level, there's the, the Heads Together campaign, so all the royals are getting behind, um, you know, getting behind the national conversation. The first generation of uh, the royal family are getting behind the, the, the national mental health conversation, and they're absolutely smashing it. The Heads Together campaign is absolutely uh, smashing it. Uh, we're gonna have compulsory mental health education in schools as of next year, which is long overdue. So we're starting at a young age, absolutely awesome. Um, a couple of weeks ago, uh, the Campaign Against Living Miserably, an amazing charity, uh, they, they, they were spearheading the conversation with government to have our first minister for suicide prevention, which we now have, and she's off to a flying start. And there are so many organisations popping up to provide 
solutions to empower workplaces, the community, kids to speak up about what they're going through. And uh, a really great resource for some of your leadership team will be the Minds at Work movement as well. So with the Heads Together stuff, Minister for Suicide Prevention, Compulsory Mental Health Education, and the Minds at Work stuff, there is so much positive stuff happening out there. And you know, for me personally, this is getting far bigger than just me sharing my story now. So I've personally launched uh, a new social enterprise, which you guys can check in on at any point. It's called Are We OK UK? And the whole purpose of uh, Are We OK UK is a lifelong mission to empower the UK to speak up when we're suffering so that together we can show future generations how to do it by talking, by listening, by creating and collaborating. By talking, listening, creating and collaborating, just like we're doing right now. Um, it's a lifelong mission. We started the podcast to take the message to a national level, hence why I'm recording this right now. And uh, you can join us on your social media channels. We're going to have live events and we'll be signposting people to products and services that can tangibly help us to speak up when we're suffering. And I'm a huge advocate that every single one of us um, should have some sort of reflecting, reflective talking therapy. Every single one of us. I had to this year. Uh, I've just found out I'm going to be a dad in May next year. Yeah, <laughs> can we just do that again? <laughs> Georgie, you heard that. <laughs> and um, it's thrown up all these anxieties. So this year for me hasn't been the easiest. And you know, from January pretty much through to September, I was really struggling. I was really struggling. I just, I just, I just couldn't see how bringing a baby into the world in our family was going to fit in. I just couldn't see how this was going to work. And it turned up all of, all of these anxieties. I just wasn't, wasn't present at work. I was just really struggling, and so I invested in a coach. You know, I found a coach. I just went on the, the coaching directory, and I found a, you know, I was punched in my postcode. There were 12 um, coaches that came up within a 10 mile radius, and I spoke to three or four of them, and had a conversation with one of them, really resonated, and um, I had three coaching sessions, and he completely reframed my thinking, and just gave me an amazing sense of perspective about what it's gonna be to become a dad. And I'm just so excited, I'm so excited around that. And it's just the power of um, you know, investing in some reflective coaching, which I believe every single person across the UK should have. So that is Are We OK UK? And I'm so proud of this trust that you guys are a part of. And I'm telling you, I'm telling you, I've been paying attention to this for six years. The trust that you guys are employed by are the trailblazers. They are absolutely at the front of this movement you know the tide is turning with the with the stats and you know mental health in generally uh, mental health in general across the uk but the derby and burton correct please tell me if i've got that wrong yeah. i've got it right great so derby and burton uh, nhs trust they are absolutely trailblazing their investment in every single one of you they really care about you guys they care about your career development they absolutely care about the local community that you guys are serving and you're in great hands you really really are you're in great hands. And how I look at things is, is that, you know, in terms of the courage, we're going to have to find that in ourselves. But I'm hoping that I can play my part to, to help you guys going forward for the rest of my life with Are We OK UK? That is the home of giving people and empowering people with the courage to speak up when they're suffering. But we do have to find it ourselves and we have to take it upon ourselves to get that bit of strength when we can. And the great thing in terms of that is that you've got wonderful people around you. There are 199-ish other people around you right now who can support you with that. And you know, I know that this trust absolutely creating an environment, a life-enhancing place for you to come to work every day where they can at least provide 
the support and the safe space for you guys to speak up while, uh, about what you're going through. However, that said, it's not easy, is it? You know, to speak to your seniors, to say I'm really struggling right now. You know, I've got this thing going on at home, I've got this thing going on with my family. You know, you know I've got low confidence, my mood's just dropped. All that stuff is really hard to vocalize, especially to our seniors. And they probably find exactly the same, and it just goes up and up and up and up, all the way to the top. And so what I would suggest to any person who is struggling out there, and I say this to my friends and family as well, is that the workplaces do provide an amazing arena where we can speak out to the person to the left and right of us. And you've already given that person a round of applause, a round of applause at the start of this talk. Every single person in this room really cares. Your empathy is already there, and it's just been topped up by Carolyn's Caroline, sorry. No, it's Carolyn. I've got it right. Carolyn's talking a minute ago. So, you know, you guys are some of the most empathetic people in the UK. So use that. And remember that the people to the left and right of you care about you also. And if you ever feel like you're burdening somebody else, you're not. You're not at all. You know, flip it. And wouldn't it be a real privilege, actually, if you came into work tomorrow and one of your colleagues came up to you and just said, Lucy, Dan, whatever, can we just take a lunch? Can we just go and grab 10 minutes in the corridor? We'll go and get some breath air, you know, breath air, fresh air at lunch. And just say, look, I've got this thing going on. Do you mind if we just talk about it? And we get it out of our system. We vocalize what's going on. And it's all because we want to bring the best versions of ourselves to work. But how privileged would you feel if your colleague came up to you and expressed that they were struggling? And you just used all that empathy and you just listened. And you didn't try to fix them. You just listened to them. You'd be a great friend. You create a safe space for them to speak up about what they're going through. You make it confidential. And that is the point, guys. We are not, we are not your suicide prevention team. We're healthcare support workers. I'm a speaker. You know, Carolyn's a trainer. You know, we're not the ones who are there to fix people if they've got something severe going on with their mental health. We just need to be a great friend. And nine times out of 10, people just want to be heard. And they want to be seen. And that is it. That is it. And so if we can find the courage collectively and create the support network around us and the safe space, which is exactly what your leadership team are doing right here today, I think we're heading for a really, really beautiful horizon in years to come with a zero suicide culture, one where everybody feels empowered to speak up about what they're going through and every single person across the UK has the courage, the support and the safe space to speak up about whatever we're going through. And if we get it right, it's only going to resonate with those that you're serving up here in Derby. So guys, that is me. I'm hanging around for lunch. I can't wait for the uh, suicide prevention session after lunch as well. I absolutely can't wait for that. Thank you all so much. And as always, if there's one thing to sign off on, it's this. is that we are all suffering with something. So let's talk about it. And let's show future generations how it's done. So there we go, guys. Thanks so much for sticking with me to the end of what has been episode 007. Um, I know it was a similar dialogue throughout that talk, um, similar to the one that we gave for International Men's Day uh, the week before, but the quality is improving every time we give these talks, as is the actual audio quality itself. So I hope you enjoyed that one. Uh, again, as always, there are a couple of things that you can do to really support this movement. And one is to give us a rating and a review on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. It really, really helps to raise the awareness of the podcast. Um, and it's all for the 
cause, as you know. Um, and as always, um, if this episode resonated with you and you know somebody out there who could uh, benefit from a little bit of a boost right now, particularly so as we are in the thick of the winter season with these dark nights, if you know somebody that is suffering out there right now, it would be absolutely amazing if you could share either this episode or episode 001 so that they can click in at the start of this adventure that we started together and then they can catch up from there. Guys, that has been episode 007. I love you all. Shake and bake. Thank you.